Hello? This mic is on. Uh, good noon, everyone. Welcome to the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs, or better known by the acronym SACPA. My name is Graham Greenlee. I will be your moderator today. Everybody can hear me, right? All right. Here we go. Be as brief as possible, okay. I'd like to remind everybody to please turn off their cell phones now. These sessions are, are being recorded. Um, cost of the session is $10. Please put your money in the basket that you see in the middle of the table. Somebody will be around to collect it later. And would someone at each table please make sure the right amount of money is in the basket for the number of people at the table. SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization and relies on the contributions of members and session attendees to continue our work. Memberships are usually available from Lisa, who sits over here by my right, but she's not here today. So if you would like to join, please come again next week. We're going, we're going to have a, a Riveting annual meeting, and you can buy, buy a, a membership at that time. <laughs> I'd like to thank our partners, University of Lethbridge, for their uh, support and distribution of notices. Country Kitchen Catering for always providing a, a yummy lunch. Shaw TV for rebroadcasting our sessions 4.30 p.m. on Sundays. And uh, Lethbridge Media for, for supporting the work that we do. The format is about half an hour for our speaker. Then we will break for lunch. That'll take about a half an hour. And we will reconvene at 1 o'clock for a question and discussion period. I would like to now introduce today's speaker. It's uh, Dr. Susan McDaniel, who is the director of the Prentice Institute and professor of sociology at the University of Lethbridge. Susan is also a Canada Research Chair, Tier 1, and the Prentice Research Chair in Global Population, Life Course, and Economy. She's the first Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Social Sciences at the University of Lethbridge. Susan uh, relocated to Lethbridge in the summer of 2009 from the University of Utah, where she was professor and senior investigator in the Institute for Public and International Affairs. She has also previously taught at the Universities of Alberta and Waterloo. Dr. McDaniel is an internationally known sociologist and social demographer 
and she's the author of many books and research articles. She is a frequent advisor on social and science policies, both in Canada and the, around the world. So, ladies, ladies, my mic just, oh, it's on back on again. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Susan McDaniel. Good noon. I've never heard that before, but it's a good phrase. Thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, and uh, let me just say, am I audible okay? As I don't want to be too loud, scare you. Um, I, let me just say, this is the third talk I've given at SACPAS, so I'm very pleased to be back for a, an encore encore. And I don't know what that means. Maybe, um, maybe there aren't enough speakers or something. But anyway, I'm glad to be back again and to see you all again. And I, I will guarantee I won't repeat the other two talks, so this is going to be new and different. Um, what I thought I'd do, uh, first of all, is introduce a couple people just briefly because some of my cheering squad is here from the Institute. First of all, Sheila Matson, who's the administrative assistant in the Prentice Institute. And Sheila has brought a whole packet of information, including a hot off the press newsletter about the Prentice Institute at the University of Lethbridge. And she's put them on the table just outside the door. Uh, so, so there's lots, of, probably more information than you would wish. She also has a little sign-up sheet if you want to be uh, Something I said? <laughs> anyway, uh, if you want to be informed about, uh, about our brown bag talks and uh, our major speakers that are coming through, uh, I will tell you that in the fall we're going to have Doug Saunders, who you may know, uh, author of the award-winning book, Arrival Cities, and uh, uh, international correspondent for the Globe and Mail. He's going to be uh, our, our, our major speaker in the fall. I'd also like to introduce a couple of other people. Dr. Uh, Jermaine Boko, who is Prentice Research uh, uh, Analyst, and Dr. Sarah Zella, who is one of our uh, postdocs at the Institute, and Tanya Byrne, who is one of our master's students. So you see, they all came here. I don't know. They wanted the lunch, I guess. But anyway, it's nice to see them all. <laughs> uh, what I thought I'd do in the short time I have today, uh, because I've been told you're interested in world and global population, what I thought I would do is not uh, provide data table after data table and chart after chart because, you know, you might nod off into your plate, and I don't want that to happen. Although somebody pointed out you wouldn't have plates yet, so I guess you're safe. So what I'm going to try to do is tell you a story about global population and uh, ask the question, what are the challenges, and importantly, what are the opportunities? Um, so let me just uh, mention that. I will also mention that there are a couple of our research affiliates at the Prentice here to, as well, so uh, it's really good to see them at, sit, sitting at the back, so that's wonderful. Um, so I'm not going to necessarily to, uh, give a doom and gloom talk, so if you're prepared for that, you can leave now, I guess. <laughs> it's going to be much more nuanced and much more upbeat. So essentially what's going on with world population is... whoops. Okay, there we go. Uh, the seventh billion person was born uh, in uh, November 2nd, uh, uh, November 1st, I'm sorry, 2011, and believe it or not, they found this person. Uh, the media found this person, and it's listed in The Guardian. Uh, there's a picture of him. Uh, they, uh, they know that that must be the person, so, so how they work this out. So child six billion hopes for peace as population races to seven billion. 
Now, what happened then was, of course, a lot of hand-wringing interviews done and headlines all around, and I have samples of them. Uh, Essentially, oh my, what are we going to do? Population growth's out of control. We've got to do something. I'll get into that in a moment, but a lot of those. And a number of videos circulating, and people keep sharing them with me, about crowded cities, and here's a few. And the image, of course, is portrayed that, you know, unless we do something about this, whatever shall we do, uh, this is what our beaches are going to look like, this is what our, our, our place is going to look like. Um, Now, living in Lethbridge and looking out at baby deer, as we did this morning from the Institute, uh, it's hard to imagine that we would live in in such crowded conditions. So I think we have to nuance this quite a bit to understand that there are crowded places, but it's not necessarily due to population growth. It's due to population distribution and migration, which we'll talk about in a moment. But there are issues uh, like this. Uh, that come forward with, uh, oh my gosh, you know, the world is overburdened with people and it's the numbers of people that are the problem, not other issues. So in other words, we got more people, we got more problems. Uh, Now everybody, if you know anything about life, knows that not all people are problems. I mean, think about your friends or your circle. Well, we got some problem people around, but not all people are problems. So the exact ratio of people to problems is not entirely clear in any realm. But then we've got the image of Henny Penny, uh, and most people know about this. You know, the sky is going to fall. In this case, it's not that. It's that people are going to come tumbling out of the sky and fall on us, and we're going to have very much doom and gloom. So what I'm asking here is to try to unpack this a bit, and I'm going to unpack it in a, in a couple of ways that make it more, much more complicated. So the question I'm asking fundamentally is, what is the relationship between population, and here we're talking about population growth, numbers, and something like environment, something like economic growth, something like quality of life? We could have a number of, of things here, but I'm just listing three. So the question is, How much is population growth per se, the growth in numbers, not distribution, nothing like that, just numbers, how much is it related to these uh, these factors? And there are people who will argue that it's a one-to-one ratio. You got more people, you got more environmental degradation. Uh, and you have less economic growth, you have uh, 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 de- depleted quality of life. And my question is, is that so? And the answer, because I like to give the punchline right away, is no. It's not that simple at all. It's much more complicated, but at the same time, it is simple that some of us in some parts of the world are a problem for the environment. We are, and it's us. It's not somebody in a rural village in another part of the world, in the developing part of the world, because they have a much lighter footprint. It's us. It's with our high consumption, our big houses, our big cars, uh, that kind of thing that's the problem for, for environment, for the most part. Uh, and the same thing's true for economic growth. Numbers of people do not necessarily mean greater economic growth. And I just wanted to, to parenthetically share with you a story here. We just went through, and some of you may have watched on TV, because I did, the Queen's Jubilee, which was quite wonderful. The concert was extraordinary. And here we have this 86-year-old woman, 91-year-old husband, standing on a boat for three hours in the rain. I mean, it's quite remarkable, actually, a, an advertisement for aging. Aging well, I want to be like them when I grow up. But there they are. 
Uh, well, in, in 1903, there was a similar kind of an event to celebrate Edward VII, I think, and I'm not quite sure what the event was. It wasn't a jubilee, but it was some kind of darn thing. And they had a, a, a pathway that the king and queen went through in a carriage, probably the same carriage, they went through, and on that pathway were advertisements, early advertisements in 1903. And you know what they were for? They were for immigration to Canada. Wilfrid Laurier at the time said quite openly, Canada is desperately underpopulated. We need people to migrate to Canada to fill our vast spaces and to contribute to our economic growth and our quality of life. So they had advertisements on this, on this carriage trail advertising for that, and I find that kind of interesting because there's still arguments made, and I, we're not talking here about global population, we're talking about Canada, that Canada is underpopulated and could do with more people. Uh, now, I'm not going to say one way or the other, but there are people who argue that. So let's move on here. What I'm asking here is what we think about population. Uh, there was in the 1970s, and some of you might remember this, and earlier than that, but this was a big thing in the 1970s, the population bomb. And what that meant was too many people in the world. Now, there are far less people in 1970s than there are now, but Paul Ehrlich got busy and the Club of Rome got busy and everybody got worked up about too many people in the world. And we're going to talk about that in a moment because I want to unpack that one. Now, what is the rhetoric? And this is all over the place. Too few people. Shortage of workers, population aging, we don't have enough births, we've got to do something about the birth rate. This is really the major rhetoric today, and it's panic. I'll talk about that in detail in a moment. So what I'm asking here, and I have the three bears there deliberately, when is population ever just right like porridge? Uh, we, we swing from one side to the other. We're not quite sure what we're getting into. I'm not entirely sure why this is talking to me, but it is. Am I too close, too far away, talking too much? okay? Okay, it's buzzing. I don't want to be buzzed. Um, okay, let me just tell you a little bit about, uh, this is a book that is uh, went to press yesterday uh, on global aging in the 21st century. Why am I mentioning that? Because in this book there are numbers of things that are very interesting and are worthwhile saying. Not because it's my book, but because uh, people don't know this. Birth rates, for example, are declining all over the world. Less so in sub-Saharan Africa, but even there they're declining. The entire world is aging in demographic terms. Not just us. We're aging faster. Uh, uh, I mean, we in the West, that's what I mean. Japan is the oldest society on Earth demographically, uh, and we are relatively young in the developed world, but we're all aging, including sub-Saharan Africa. So what, we're, what we learn here is that um, many people... Uh, are thinking about we need to decrease birth rates, they're already going down. They're going down without our help. There are other problems that are quite serious, but the birth rates are going down. And when birth rates go down, just a quick lesson in demographic aging, if you think of a population pyramid, if you chip away at the bottom of it, what happens is, even without longevity increasing, but longevity is increasing in most of the parts of the world. But even without that, the median age goes up because you've decreased at the bottom. So the main cause of population aging is lowering birth rates. 
But increased longevity matters too. And what we find in this global aging book, when we look all around the world, is that people are not only living longer, but in most parts of the world, they're living longer in a much more healthy state. So the notion of um, aging populations bankrupting the healthcare system, not so. The other thing we learn is that most people of any age, and I just want to emphasize that, at any age, use health care in their last little bit of life. That's true for older people, but it's also true for babies and teenagers and car accident victims and people throughout the lifespan. So it's not only older people. But this notion that the people at age 65 come flying out of the woodwork and demand health care, it's just not so in any part of the world. It's just not the case. Uh, you're more likely to find them running around on the streets and going in ultra marathons and having other knows what else um, until they're quite, quite old. Uh, and even then, some of them are in marathons. So what we want to talk about is um, some issues of population control. And what I'd like to talk about here is two dimensions of population control, one of which has been immensely successful and the other one a bit hilarious and unsuccessful. The main project of population control in the world, globally, has been a collective preference for living a long time. Now, nobody's going to faint at that, because who wants to die early, unless you want to be like James Dean or something, you know, and look cute all your life, and then die early. Most of us don't want that. We want to live a long, healthy life with good quality of life. So the collective preference to allow babies to survive... Well, first of all, babies to be born healthy, and then to survive to age one. That's a very dangerous period. Then to survive to age two and three and then grow up. Uh, To decrease that has been a, a collective preference around the world, and everybody pretty well has taken part in that. And that means aid organizations, physicians, healthcare workers, we ourselves, donors, everybody you can imagine, governments, everybody says that's a great goal. Well, that's fine, but that, of course, has led to population aging, which is a good thing rather than a bad thing because we don't want to die young. That's the whole idea. So the second project has been to reduce fertility. And I have here 1950s and prior specifically. And this has been largely an us versus them project. And I've got it listed here as we're okay, the problem's them. And that's led to some very interesting, uh, sad, and sometimes hilarious dynamics. One is the nasty turn of eugenics and Hitler, of course this concept that you want to control population by eradicating certain populations, certain ethnic groups. And ethnic cleansing uh, is certainly part of our lifetime. It's not only with Hitler. Uh, And eugenics, which I'm going to turn to, which hits Alberta in one moment. And there's always this underlying us versus them theme. The problem is them, whoever them is. Can be them in the third world, them in the developing world, them across there, them the immigrants, them the undesirables, whatever. It's always them. We're okay, they're not. They're the problem. So what about this, uh, this um, uh, prospect of reducing birth rates among them in developing worlds? Well, this is a lot of, of, of rhetoric, but I wanted to show you the quote. This was uh, discussing the population bomb in the 1950s, uh, and this is the, the, the joy of foam tablets. Now, this is not a joke. It's real. This happened. Uh, the idea was to have foam contraceptive tablets distributed by elephants... <laughs> 
There's one with foam tablets all around India. You can't make this up. It's actually happened. And they gave them transistor radios if they had uh, foam tablets. So, the, the, But the key point is the second bullet. The potential of foam tablets was never fulfilled. Why? Because of the unreliability of the darn foam tablets. But also, it's backward users. So it's this them notion. You label them as backward. The, these poor people didn't know how to use foam tablets, um, and so uh, so it's just not going to work. Uh, well, you know, it's a clearly us versus them phenomenon. So the project was abandoned, uh, abandoned promptly, uh, despite the the beautiful elephants that distributed them. They also had the idea you'd distribute contraceptive pills around uh, and, and give people transistor radios. Well, that didn't quite work either because the contraceptive pills were in pretty packages and people did, they didn't have instructions on how to use them or what they were good for, so people made mosaics and they did all kinds of useful things, mobiles, I mean, all kinds of useful things with them and they decorated the elephants. <laughs> So we have uh, Canada, and that, that's not demeaning to people. It's rather that this was a silly campaign to say, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna change these people's behavior without att- attending to what their behavior was or how it worked. It's an imposition from abroad. But Canada had its own campaign for them, this them, us, we're okay. And this is eugenics in Alberta, and I just want to, uh, to, uh, to put, put a little parenthetical comment here. This is forced sterilizations of those thought to be mentally defective. Now, many of you know this story, so I won't go into much detail, but it happened right here, and it was going on right under our noses until Lahi came into power in 1971. So it was right in Alberta, and it's quite a case in, in Alberta. Uh, this person is Lilani Muir, who I know quite well, as a little girl and as a grown-up. Why do I put this on here? Well, because Lilani Muir was sued the, the, the province of Alberta successfully for uh, a forced sterilization. The story is, if you don't know it, very briefly, and I mentioned I was going to tell stories, she was an unwanted child in a poor family. And her mother uh, her mother took wanted to do something with her because she didn't have enough she didn't want the girl, and she didn't have enough money to, to care for her, so she dropped her off at Alberta Hospital, and anyone who was admitted to Alberta Hospital was deemed mentally defective and sterilized against their will. Well, she didn't know she was sterilized. She was told that she had an operation for something, appendicitis or whatever it was, when she was a girl. She only realized she was sterilized later when she tried to have a baby. She got married and tried to have a baby. She found out. But then she had an IQ test and was found to be a perfectly normal intelligence. There was no problem with this girl, but but they sterilized her as being mentally defective. So she sued the Alberta government and won. And since then, there have been 700 other people who were sterilized under this act who came forward uh, uh, to do this. And it's been made into a National Film Board uh, film, The Sterilization of Lilani Muir. And it's very, very touching to show how, how she was essentially dropped there. There's another story related not to her, but to another person in the class action suit. It was a woman from northern Alberta who spoke Slavi. Slavi, the the, the, uh, Aboriginal language. And she was described in the files for the Alberta Hospital as speaking gibberish. So she was speaking gibberish. She was sterilized because she was speaking gibberish. Nobody could understand the language. So there are all kinds of things that go on when you try population control. You have to be very, very careful about. 
Then there's this example. Kaufman uh, campaigned for workers in Kitchener. Uh, uh, Kaufman was a guy who owned a, an industrial plant in Kitchener. And this is an autobiography of A.H. Trier, uh, Tyrer, who, who worked with Kaufman on birth control, um, birth control for the irresponsible classes that worked for him. And this is very telling, what, what, what this autobiography says. He said, these classes, the professional and the educated, are producing less than three children to a family as a gift to anywhere up to 20 amongst the laboring classes. This is a great handicap that that confronts social progress. Now, if you sort of superimpose that us and them on a developed world, developing world scenario, you can see it's the same kind of rhetoric. Them is the problem, we're fine. Uh, And it recurs again and again and again, however them is defined. So what I see here, I'm getting close to the end, anybody who's getting anxious, Uh, five main challenges that are only loosely linked to population, and by population I mean numbers, growth, just pure numbers. The first one is the increasing concentration of populations, and that's where we go to those images that I showed of the beaches and, and everything else. That is a problem. What we're having is increasing numbers of young mobile people, whether poor or rich or well-educated or not, coming into cities, creating huge problems in cities around the world. Um, And this is occurring everywhere, including in Canada, but we do have good infrastructure in Canada, but it's including every big city in the world. They camp on the edges of cities that create sanitation problems, all kinds of issues. If you look at Rio or any, any place in the world, you can see this. So that is an issue. I'm not denying that. But that's not a numbers issue. It's another distribution kind of issue. What they leave behind in the countryside are older people. And that's an issue, too, because those older people are not getting care. Their younger relatives have moved away, so they don't have those structures. Uh, That's happening in Canada as well. Consumption by the well-off. This is a huge issue. The us versus them. Our footprint in every possible way, is much bigger than theirs, whoever theirs is defined. And that is creating the problem rather than, rather than numbers. So I quote from the, uh, a report from the World Wildlife Fund, which came out this year. Uh, it's called the Living Planet Report. And uh, it says, so far, if all the world's residents lived like the typical Canadian, about three and a half planets would be needed to support their demands on natural resources. The clear evidence, and we don't like to hear this, but the clear evidence is our footprint is huge. We're the Sasquatches. We're the big, fat footprints. The rest of the world, to some extent, the rest of the the non-developed and industrialized world, has much lighter footprints. So it's not them that's the problem with respect to environments, us. Then there's inadequate distribution of resources. This is constant. Too much food in some places, too little in others. Uh, We throw food away. Uh, Other people are starving. And that occurs right in our own society where there's hunger and and, and, uh, deprivation. And then there's very much problem with obesity. So we've got this right in our own society. But that's a problem of distribution of resources. Lack of provision of enabling context. This is a fancy way to say that we would not be in this room unless we were protected when we were children, because we would have died. If we were left out in the woods in a climate like ours, we would have died. We need, we need enabling context. We need education. We need health care. We, uh, we need tender care when we're very young. Um, we need food. We need all those things in order to survive. And those enabling contexts are diminishing for a lot of people in the world. 
a lot of people because aid is diminishing to, to developing countries. Canada is very much part of this. It used to give quite a lot of aid. It's diminishing greatly and it's very much targeted. So that's a kind of an issue that is a big concern. But other, other places are limiting their aid too and countries need aid. So that's the lack of provision of enabling context, lack of po political will to address climate change and environment, we know about that. We know the problems and we just don't have the will to address it. So we have this notion, and I'm including this because it really shows it well, where the big population is in the world. Uh, it's, not in, it's not in Africa for the most part, some of it, but it's in other places around the world where those big spikes are. So what about world population of 7 billion? How does it open opportunities? Uh, numbers may be less crucial than, I'm, I'm right on time. Numbers may be less crucial than distributions, and I don't mean just distributions of population, but distributions of resources, food, land, all of those kind of things. Um, there is such a thing as a demographic bonus. Now, I don't want to go into this in too much detail because I'm running out of time, but also because it's a bit overplayed. So, I, so I'm putting it here as a possibility. But essentially what the demographic bonus is, is the period where the age structure is more, most favorable to the economy. Now, the problem with this is you're playing with artificial numbers. So you're talking about the number of people who are potentially workforce age. If the unemployment is high, as it is in Spain right now, for example, 25%, Overall, it's really high among, among young people. The numbers that, of people in that age category don't matter. It matters that they have jobs and can be productive. So it's playing with the kind of fake numbers here. But anyway, a good ratio of people in this age group is potentially good for the economy. So what I thought I'd do is this one little table that I cooked up uh, based on actual data for these countries, which shows the period in which they have the most number of people who are of economically productive ages. And I emphasize that doesn't mean they're working. It means the most number of people. And it's kind of interesting, particularly when you look here, for example, at China. China, right, oh, oops, sorry. Guess I can't do that. China right now is, is in a, a kind of demographic uh, bonus situation, which is very good. Uh, they're going to be elderly pretty quickly because of the one-child policy, but still, right now, they have a large number of people in that category. Uh, Northern and Southern Europe are moving out of that category very quickly because 2010 was the end for them. Canada, the peak was in 2008. In Japan, it was 1995, and, you know, Japan's experienced some problems, some of my research is there. But it's kind of interesting to look at this and to, to say that there are demographic bonus periods where you can use, uh, use it uh, fruitfully. Okay, moving along, uh, E.O. Wilson has, I think, this quite wonderful quote about the Faustian choice upon us, whether to accept our corrosive, risky behavior, and by that I mean here, consumption for us, as the unavoidable price of population and economic growth, or take take stock of ourselves and search for a new environmental ethic. It could be environmental, it could be any kind, social ethic, caring ethic. So what kinds of lives are we talking about? And talk on this is increasing, and some of it is very scary stuff. So I'm just going to end with a couple of scary things and then try to be upbeat. Talk about babies and children. We've talked a lot about this, um, about older adults, about us versus them. And I'm talking right now, 2012. In the U.S., there are proposals floating around by eminent people to talk about rationing health care to those 80 and above. So in other words, you come to a hospital, you're 80 and above, you don't get health care because you're on your last legs anyway, they say. 
Oh my, exactly. It's a very big worry. But you think about how that would work now. You come in, you need something, and there's somebody there who is um, 45, um, needs a heart transplant right away, and you're kind of neck and neck with that person who needs that right away. Already, I bet this is happening. I'll bet it's happening right now. But anyway, it's a proposal. But this is another one that was in last Sunday's New York Times. Uh, and this is a very interesting kind of concept, how science maps into, into possibilities. This is a new genome prospect where you can, uh, you can essentially uh, say very quickly, have a lot, a lot of information about a fetus. Uh, and you can imagine, in not too short a, a reach here, that this could be a kind of liberal eugenics, maybe by the parents. And, of course, there was this big CBC uh, expose about sex selection uh, going on in private clinics and private ultrasound clinics. You may have seen that on the CBC. This is another kind of forced sterilization, if you like, um, uh, of, of, of babies, really, of people who are having babies that they consider defective, who knows whether they're defective? So the emerging concept here, and this is where I end, is lighter lives, which is more an us than a them challenge. And lighter lives mean living less on the less heavily on the planet, uh, and and with consideration for what we're expending. So thank you very much. Well, following that, welcome back, everyone. We usually uh, announce the topic for next week at this time, and uh, well, it's going to be the annual meeting. I'm sure it will be riveting, so I expect to see you all here next Thursday. Yeah, it's uh, there's going to be a free lunch for anybody who is a, pay a paid-up member of SACPA. So you, you can buy your membership. I won't say if you come next week, when you come next week. Um, this and past sessions can all be heard on audio on the website. And also there's a, a session survey and a comment blog available on the website. So anyone, anyone who wants to... Uh, take part in that can keep the discussion going. Also, we have a su suggestion box on the table just outside the door here. We would invite anybody to submit uh, suggestions for future programs, or if you have any criticisms, uh, uh, we don't want to hear those. <laughs> Just to restate, today's topic is uh, world population of 7 billion. What are the challenges and opportunities? We have a microphone set up over here near, near the wall on, on, on my right. And we'd like, we'd like you to use that, that uh, microphone to ask your question. Please uh, state your name and keep your question as brief as possible. Only one or two questions, please. No questions from the floor. We, we want them all through that mic because the sessions are, are being recorded. And after you ask your question, uh, please return to your seat. We'd like to give uh, our speaker the maximum time to uh, answer questions. 
Well, I think we're ready to uh, begin the question period, so I would like to invite Susan back to the, the microphone. Terry Shillington, Th thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, I'd like to clarify something. <clears throat> I came here with the uh, assumption that the world population was growing. And, um, and I'm not exactly sure what I heard you say. Did you say that the rate of growth was slowing? Uh, is there a point at which you'd project us uh, having a population of 8 billion? Or are you saying the population of the planet is now in decline? Uh, as you talk about an aging planet and uh, slowing birth rate and so on? Okay, this is a really good question. It's kind of a mathematical question you're asking. The, the, the population of the world is growing, no question about it. But that's because even if the birth rate all around the world is declining, if all the people who can have children are having children, even if they're having fewer of them, the population still grows. So it's a question of of the rate at which it grows, but birth rates are declining all over the world. Now, that doesn't mean in, there aren't certain regions where they still have large families and that kind of thing, but generally speaking, birth rates are declining, but population is growing. Does that make sense? Okay. Thanks for the question. It's really important to get that clarified. John Kalpas. Along the same theme, I'm wondering if you've uh, heard about the book I think the title is Feeding 10 Billion, and I think the author was, if I recollect, uh, Platel or Pletel, Feeding 10 Billion, assuming that uh, we're going to get to that point. Uh, thank you. I haven't read that book, but I have heard about it. The, the question with food is a complicated one. And, and, and just picture it. First of all, it relates to distribution. So we have food that where it's not needed, there's too much food. Where it's needed, there's too little. But there's also a question of how we eat. So, for example, if we eat a lot of food that is... Um, that requires intensive agriculture, like beef, for example, requires intensive agriculture. It costs more per acre to grow a cow, a beef cow, than it does to grow grains. So there's all kinds of issues like that. But then there's a third issue. With the point that I made about, um, about cities and, and people uh, being drawn to the bright lights of cities around the world and cities becoming huge megalopolises, uh, which we don't really see in Canada to that extent, although if you're on the 401 in Toronto, you wonder some days, but, um, but we don't see it in, in Canada to, that, to the extent that they see it in most parts of the world. What, what's happening is that more and more agricultural land is being paved over. That's even happening around Lethbridge, actually, but on a very small scale, to build big houses. So this concept of less agricultural land being available to feed more people is, is there too. But it's not a simple ratio of the number of mouths versus food availability. It's filtered through all these things, like the, the way we eat and how we eat and how food gets distributed and how it's grown and all of those kinds of issues matter greatly. So I'm not trying to dodge the question, but when we consider feeding people, we have to consider it's not only numbers. Mary Shillington, thank you for your talk. It got me thinking about a variety of things, and one of the things that I've been concerned about is the aid that uh, 
every time you hear uh, an announcement made by this per particular federal government, uh, the aid is going down. Uh, and and I'm wondering if you can say more about it, because you said this was, uh, as I recollect, it's not just Canada that this is happening. And, and it seems to me that the aid sometimes is tied together with them buying our products and so on and so forth. Uh, so I wonder if you could say some more about, about that and concerns that you have. Um, it's a very, very important question. What's happening is that in the past, sometimes aid was used in, in crazy ways, like the, what I mentioned with the foam tablets and the elephants and the notion that we know what's best for you, so we're going to force you, essentially, to, to, or to our way of, of, of uh, planning families, which is, you know, crazy. It didn't work, and it's not going to work. So aid can be a real negative. But then what's happened in Canada is precisely what you say. There's been a sharp decline in aid going out uh, to, to various parts of the world. A sharp decline. There's been also a sharp decline in collaborative research development projects with Canadian researchers, Canadian development experts, and people in other countries. And some of that in the past has been immensely successful. We have huge success stories. Now we're not doing that anymore. The notion is that what, what's happening is... And, and this is where it gets really kind of scary. But what's happening is that a lot of Canadian aid is going to countries in cooperation with local businesses. Now, on the surface, that sounds great. But one of the prime examples of that has been uh, Canadian aid that is partnered with mining companies in, a, in Africa to provide, get this, education. Now, on the surface, that sounds, oh, that might be great because what you're doing is leveraging the Canadian dollar by getting more dollars in from a multinational company. But you can imagine maybe the education is simply to educate the locals to be good miners in the company or education about how mining is great in this part of the world and we shouldn't be critical of it. So it has, there's all kinds of things going on. When I say that aid has declined in other parts of the world, it has. But in Canada, the decline has been sharper, more precipitous. And, and it really is, um, in my view, a kind of a, a relinquishing of our global obligations. And that's a huge concern. Because we talk about global, uh, our global citizenship, we want to have children and we train people, young adults, to be global citizens, and yet we're not being global responsible citizens as a government by, um, by, by neglecting the, the fact that people are in need. So it's a very important thing. The last thing I want to say about this, and I don't mean to go on and on, is your point about the trade-off or the, the negotiation, the notion that trade packages go with aid or that aid is, is done with free trade. Maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> Hi, Susan. I'm glad you got your tea, finally. Thank you. Uh, getting back to your talk about cities growing bigger and bigger and mega cities there's like in China has um, towards a hundred cities there's all well over millions um, do you see any move to limit the size of city like uh, we live in an age of information technology there's no reason for everybody to live in the city uh, do you see any movement in terms of countries trying to decentralize? 
Well, the question's a, a good one, and your mention of China is quite interesting because what the Chinese government has done in Beijing, which is really interesting, is they've moved people. Uh, of course, you know, when you, when you run a, a country... You know, you're not you're not asking for people's opinions, so you just move them. Other parts of the world don't have that capability. So, but but so what they've done is move people away. Uh, we do that for big events. We move the homeless out of Vancouver in order to make it look better. You know, so we do it too. I'm not saying only people in China can do it, but they can do it. The other thing they did, which was quite clever, is they said, and this has happened in other parts of the world, they said Beijing's too big. So what we're going to do is say a dividing line is here, and if you're beyond that dividing line, we'll call you another municipality. So essentially, they carve it up and say, okay, now we're smaller municipalities. The U.S. is very good at that, too. And what they do is have the dividing line right where the tax base goes up so that those people who are in the rich suburbs have a better school system than the people in the poor suburbs. The U.S. has been doing that for years. So the Chinese are learning from that, and they're doing that too. But as for limiting size of cities, it's had no effect because what happens is you say, well, this is not really a city. This is a burial on the outside of cities. So there are people camping on the hills of Caracas. I've seen this. Sewage running down the hillsides, mudslides happening, they have no facilities, nothing to help, but they're camping there in their, in their little shacks. So limiting the size doesn't help. People still go there. And that's Doug Saunders' book, Arrival Cities, that shows that. But that is a problem of population, but it's a problem of migration, not a problem of numbers. My name is Tad Mitzi. Thank you, Susan. I know why we keep inviting you back because you're such a good teacher. Thank you. I really appreciate it. My question has to do with uh, the relationship between wealth and population. When I came to Canada during the 50s, Japan was overpopulated and abortion law was passed and everybody can have an abortion. Uh, big movement into Brazil, etc., etc. Ten years after I went back to Japan, there was a labor shortage. Uh, companies are flying, uh, grade nine graduates flying to Tokyo to work in the factories. 20 years later, they no longer have such people. They cannot fly any Japanese anymore. So they're welcoming Chinese, Filipinos, and Iranians. I didn't understand. Anyway, the, the, the labor shortage is truly serious. So my amateur conclusion is when people become wealthy, they have less children. Is that true? Well, as usual, you're thinking a lot and raising very complicated questions. Uh, on the issue of Japan and labor shortages, there's a curious phenomenon, and that is that there are not as many women in Japan who work in the paid labor force as men. And so, in some ways, there's an untapped labor market there. Uh, and, and that is changing quite dramatically, but it's going to help a, a great deal with Japan and labor shortages. Um, the other thing is that I study Japan. It's one of my, my, my data points and spent a lot of time there. But, but the other thing that's quite interesting is Japan, in Japan, everything is being tossed up in the air, including the land, uh, I mean, the, the earthquakes and everything. But, but, but it, the, the, this traditional Japanese labor system and the movement from education into the labor market is changing as well. So what's happening is that there's been a huge change in who works, the timing of the work, how they work, and the 
Japanese is to, are adjusting to that. And so the question is, is it really labor shortage or is it a question of a whole variety of other changes occurring, like the lifetime guarantee of a job that you stay in the same job from when you exit university to when you retire? Um, that whole thing is being changed. And so it's not quite clear what will happen. There are also, you mentioned several nationalities in Japan, there are also Russians. And there's a, there's a quite interesting intermarriage of Russian women with Japanese men, which is also interesting. So the question about wealth is very interesting. On average, what happens is when people become more educated, they have smaller families, particularly when women are educated. So what's happened instead of uh, foam tablets on on, um, uh, elephants going around, uh, the answer has been that if we're going to have birth rates decline, educate women, have educational opportunities for women, and that has worked. That's been very successful. But what, what this means is that educating women for the most part means that families are better off and they have fewer children. So it's a kind of chicken and egg thing. Is it education? Is it wealth? The exception to this we have interestingly enough is in the United States where the most educated women have larger families and the recent speculation on that has been quite interesting and I've talked about this in various parts of the world because it's an exception to a rule and the reason is quite fascinating seems to be directly related to the degree of inequality in the United States socioeconomic inequality it means that if you have a very large segment of the population that is quite, quite desperate for work you have a whole pool of potential domestic workers and that it's that domestic worker pool because of immense inequality in the United States. It's, it's the largest in the, in the world, in the developed world. Um, you have this pool of, of, of poor people who, who need work. You can have domestic servants. So what they have is this huge number of domestic servants among uh, dual income and highly educated people in the United States. So they can have more children because they have these live-in servants. So that is an exception. It's occurring a little bit in Canada, but for the most part, when you see a graph, it's, it's that if you, if you have more education, birth rate goes down. It doesn't disappear, but it goes down. So, so it's a complicated kind of relationship. But this finding in the U.S. is really fascinating, and I'll say it's not based on anecdote. It's based on looking at national data. Oh, I should have said thank you for your sweet compliment. I forgot to say that. Sorry. Uh, thank you very much, Susan. Your, your talks are always so informative and open our minds to various issues. My name is Frances Schultz. I want to go back to the comment that you made about the dividing up into different municipalities these areas that, of large cities Are there any countries or areas in the world where they're actually making an effort to develop industries, uh, local places where people can actually stay home in their communities and make a living? Is anyone doing anything about that? Um, The answer is yes. There are always uh, people doing very innovative things. But for the most part... Um, that's not occurring. And it's not occurring in our society either. I mean, what's happened, if you look at a city like Toronto, and I'm not picking on Toronto, but honest to goodness, some of the time when you're there, you think, what the heck is going on in this city? The 401 is packed, day and night, packed. Um, 
So why is that? Well, it's because people cannot afford to live in the city because the housing prices are too costly, but they have to work in the city, so they're commuting like two hours a day, in and out, one way sometimes. And so the congestion is ridiculous. So we're not doing it right either, you know. And, and so what do we say? Well, we say, oh, well, you know, we can't control housing markets because that's private industry. What are we going to do? Um, it, it's truly crazy. I mean, the, the, the example that, that I think is good in Canada, and I'm speaking on the home front because, you know, it's easy to criticize others, so I'll criticize ourselves. The answer that works really well is, is what Vancouver has done. I don't know whether you remember the old days in Vancouver. When you, go, when you drive from the airport to Vancouver, you'd have to drive through past everybody's house through residential streets to get downtown. Now they have the Canada line. So you get right on the, from the airport, you can go downtown, and, of course, people can commute on the Canada line to their places of work. That's the kind of thing we need more of. But um, Toronto's a, a, an interesting example of exactly what you're talking about, and that's a, going on in most parts of the world, where the workplace is here, the place to live is there, and you've got these ridiculous commuting things, which means that you have less family time, you have less time to relax, you're probably not as productive a worker, and you're polluting like crazy because you're driving every which way. So, so the thing doesn't make any sense. So your idea is a very good one. Market it. That's a good one. I'm Trevor Page. Uh, your topic is very dear to my heart, having spent a lifetime in, in food internationally with the UN and then in population, family planning in India. Um, certainly within the UN system, meant more than a question, um, is your... I forget exactly what you call it, your population bonus or something like that, which you were a little skeptical about. I am too, because it's that very age group of people um, in sub-Saharan Africa that are migrating because of poverty. You don't stay put and wait until you die. And it is that age group that actually move and try to get to Europe and beyond and leave the family back home. So I'm also a little skeptical about that. Uh, one last point, but I don't expect to reply, is I have a share in that family planning elephant, and I'll talk with you about that afterwards. <laughs> that sounds interesting. Uh, thank you very much, and I appreciate your expertise as well. And uh, you please understand, in a short talk like this, you can't cover as much detail as, as you might wish, so forgive me for doing that. Um, on birth rates in sub-Saharan Africa, on average, birth rates are declining. Now, why exactly they're declining would be multifactorial, as you would know. Uh, family planning and access to family planning would be part of it, but only part of it. What's happening is a number of things. Moving to cities can decrease birth rates, too. Because, uh, because you don't have enough uh, place to live, so your birth rates go down. Uh, migrating uh, Men who migrate away can decrease birth rates if they're migrating away to work. Um, of course, that can bring health problems exact, uh, uh, into the population as well. So there are a number of reasons. Educating women can make a huge difference, and all those things are occurring. Birth rates, on average, are going down. That means that, in some ways, Africa has an aging population in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, that doesn't mean people are living to 85 and like we are, but it does mean that the population over the age of 60 is growing, and it's growing quite dramatically proportionally, and that means that there's a lot of concern about the very thing you're talking about, the migration out. 
So back to the international situation. If we have countries like Canada, and I seem to be on the case of my home country, so forgive me, but if we have a country like Canada which says, we bring us your brightest and your most entrepreneurial, we want the new Bill Gates. That's what the minister said. Good luck in finding that, but that's what we want. We want Bill Gates to migrate here, and if he's in Africa, if he's an African, great, we want him. We don't want his granny. We don't want his mama. We don't want those people, so they're getting left behind. And Canada is playing a role in that. There's no question. Other countries are too, but Canada has cut this, this queue for uh, family reunification and said we don't want any of those people. So it leaves more people left behind in the villages, in the towns, in the cities, and we steal the best and the brightest. Um, it's a real issue. I've got to hear about that elephant, though. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. It's been very interesting. My name is Peter Green. My question uh, concerns the... Uh, it sort of touches on your comments about the change, the change in pattern of, birth, can, of uh, birth rates and things like that. But how do you uh, feel about the continuing uh, insistence on, on the part of some religious groups to object to birth control and at the same time advocate an increase in... in, in the size of families. Thank you. Uh, okay. Uh, actually, uh, that's an interesting question, but I really don't have an answer to it. I mean, uh, uh, the reality is what we're talking about is a, is a small minority. They get a lot of press and a lot of talk, but it's a small minority. The biggest family I've seen recently is two geese with 24 babies. And I looked at that and I thought, I hope some of those are adopted because, you know, it was 24 little goslings. I thought, oh my gosh, the poor parents. But, you know, I mean, some of this, if, if you have a lot of children these days, you get stared at. And I lived for two years in Utah. So I saw a lot of this, you know, some large families in Utah. It has the highest birth rate in the United States in Utah. And um, one time, I mean, people still stare at people with six little kids walking behind them in a grocery store. They, they stare at them, even in Utah. So the notion is that people say, wonder, you know, what's going on. But most of us, for the most part, um, can't afford to have that many children or don't want to. Because they take time, they take investment, and that relates to the quality question that I had back there. You know, a lot of people, they might not put it quite as crassly as I'm going to, but they will say, you know, I really might like another child, but gee, I don't have time to invest as much as I'd like to invest in that child for quality child, so I'd rather have quality children than have more quantity. I mean, they, they don't say it crassly, but that's what they mean. I want to have a child I can invest a lot of time in, and so I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to spread my my good investment time across all these kids. I'm going to have two. So I don't know. Complicated question. If you figure out the answer, you let me know. Okay. My name is Klaus Jericho. With respect to human behavior, uh, can it be regulated uh, as far as uh, lifestyle is concerned and reproduction? I think this. <laughs> We're getting into the top questions here. Are you going to me? I thought you were going to answer that one. Go, Graham. Oh, darn. Um, you know, this is a funny kind of question. I'm not a psychologist, so I could be off base. Any psychologists in the room, don't listen. <laughs> because I don't know about this kind of thing. But the fact is that we say... And in a quite arrogant sort of way that we're in charge, you know, we're in control, we're, we're not influenced, our behavior's not regulated. At the same time, we march along as if it's regulated. 
and our behavior is regulated in that sense. We're influenced by other people. We're influenced by people that say, um, gee, you know, I don't think you should have a third child. Nobody's having a third child these days. You shouldn't do that. We're influenced by it. We say we're not, but we are. And so this notion that, that we don't want to seem weird uh, is real. I mean, we are regulated in that sense, even if we say we're not. But the other thing that I sort of find interesting as a demographer sociologist is that an awful lot of people, the we part, the, the not them, but the we part, we say, well, we are in charge. We are making good decisions. We are doing what's right. And we forget that the reason why we can make good decisions is because of those enabling contexts that allow us to make good decisions. Education, health care, uh, food, um, you know, all that kind of stuff allows us to make good decisions. If we were living on the street in a cardboard box, we might not be enabled to make such good decisions. So the context enables us to be so smart. And it's the context that's collective, that's why society is so important, that allows us to make good decisions and then pretend we're not regulated and pretend we're not influenced by those contexts that we're all rugged individualists and doing it all on our own. We wouldn't survive all on our own, not in a million years. You take the next one. I think that's pretty well wrapped. Thank you very much, Susan. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. I just want to mention again that there's Prentice uh, Institute information, if you want it, out there, newsletter. And Sheila also said, because I'm going to get bad books if I don't say this, she has a, a, a sign-up thing. If you want to find out more about the interesting work we're doing at the Prentice Institute, um, she'll put you on the list with your email or whatever. Thank you. See you all back here next Thursday for the annual meeting.